to go and stick your arm up a cow. <laughs> And I'd picture just sort of brushing guinea pig's hair. <laughs> so that kind of put me off a little. And then um, I thought it would be fun to be like an actress but then mum said <laughs> that a friend of her – a friend of hers had a daughter who was an actress who had to be on stage in her undies and that was just terrifying. Mortifying. I'd rather put my hand up a cow. <laughs> so I figured out I needed to do something that seemed to be more practical and I thought that um, I went to Mitchell College, Charles Sturt Uni, to do mm. a Bachelor of Arts in Communications and I thought that that would be – that's a practical way to have those dreams which was I'd be uh, – I thought I'd be – I'd write articles. I'd, I'd be a writer for magazines and for feature stories and things and that that would be my creative outlet is I think what I thought. I guess getting into media though, uh, in some ways you just never know. One day you might have your hand up a cow. Like there's, there's so many weird things that you end up doing. Actually, that is true. True. You know? I have pretty much probably put my hand up a cow. <laughs> I know there's – and particularly beyond 2000, I've, I don't have much – I've got a little bit of knowledge about a lot of things. Mm. Not a lot of it went in. But, I, but you know, I've watched people have the top of their heads taken off in brain operations and the, uh, people giving blood in Cuba who thought they had AIDS. And, you know, standing next to a pond where we said this is the epicentre of dengue fever and I think what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> so you're right that the, a career in the media can take you anywhere. Anywhere. So when you went to do communications at Charles Sturt, um, what, what was that like? Did you really take to that? Because I know a lot of people that go down to Bathurst, it's like a little – I was talking to Deb Knight the other day. Mm. She was talking about the Mitchell Mafia mm. and the, the little town and the community that that becomes because everybody's kind of there with a certain purpose and that is to go to university. Did you enjoy that lifestyle? I loved it because I went there straight from school and uh, at school I worked hard. My mum had come from a family family where when you got to a certain age you left school and when mum joined the bank when you got married you had to leave the bank so it was a big deal to get an education she pushed you know she said get your little piece of paper and the world's your oyster was her oh, phrase and that I felt my life started really when I went to uni and lived away from home and worked out a little bit of who I was and I must say my communications degree I, I wasn't really career driven at all I was just going through the paces of having a life and I liked the arts subjects but I didn't give too much thought to where that would go in those years then. I wonder now though whether those communications courses are so much harder to get into now and and it seems that the job market, jobs in the in journalism and media are really hard to get. I, I wonder if now you people who do study this on a tertiary level have a plan in mind in a way that we never had to. What, what about you said you wanted to do writing, but when you went to Charles Sturt, you did uh, the radio station there, did you, the university radio? Uh, yes, but I did print journalism. Oh, right, right. Yeah. So, so we did a little bit thing? of everything, did a little bit of everything, but then you could specialise in PR or broadcast journalism or print journalism. Right. And so was that always the this is where at, at that early stage where even though you were doing print, did you have sort of telly or radio or any other broadcast in mind or was it just, no, I'm going to be a serious print journalist? I think I wanted to write incredible Pulitzer Prize winning articles. I think that might have been it. <laughs> you know, Tough work. <laughs> well, you know, by the age of 22, a lot of that hadn't come my way. It may surprise you to hear. <laughs> so... Uh, then I just oh, I applied for a whole stack of jobs, 
I even applied for a job in a bookshop. So I was either overqualified having a degree for those kind of jobs because I knew I was just filling in time till I got a job mm. um, or completely underqualified for everything else that I applied for. Uh, so then I got, a, that I got a job as a researcher at Simon Townsend's Wonderworld and that, and, and that sort of I was so excited that I had a job in television and I thought this is a dream. I can feel I feel like I remember the tail end of that show, but anybody I speak to in the business, I don't remember it as as well as a lot of people do, but I feel like it was a big deal at the time. It was a huge deal yeah. at the time. This was on in the afternoon. It was a magazine style program. Um, so there were four reporters. They did a story every day. And it changed the way, the cult of children's television because this was children's television that wasn't for kids. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of adults watched it as well. But it, it uh, was the first of its kind and it, everyone watched it. Everybody came home from school and watched Simon Townsend's Wonderworld in its heyday. Mm. It was amazing. Isn't it amazing those shows? I mean, I remember Beyond 2000 being a show like that back in the day when we only had a finite number of channels, when the channels would turn off and go to static at a certain Mm. time. So, you know, everybody, the, the idea that you could trap an entire country worth of audience in front of a TV was doable. It was doable because we had one TV in a house as well. So if grandma wanted to watch it or the eight-year-old kid wanted to watch it, everyone watched it. Mm. You didn't have your own options. I say to my children now, you know, they don't watch television. They're 16 and 14 and they rarely watch television. They're watching things on YouTube. They're watching things on their phone. Mm. They're streaming shows on Netflix. As a family, people don't sit down and watch TV the same way anymore. Yeah, it's changed incredibly. What was that like going into a show? Was it big by the time you got there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was very intimidating as my first job. Um, Actually, Sheridan Jobbins, it was one of the reporters that was there when I was there. Mm. I'm launching her book this weekend in Melbourne. We're still great friends. She lives in Switzerland at the moment. Oh, wow. Um, but so I've got a and, – and Philip Tanner, who's the producer of The Living Room, he was a reporter on Simon Townsend's Wonderworld. So that was another experience like the uni years. We've, a lot of people have ganged together from those days. But I was so intimidated that this was a television show yeah. and this was where you made television <laughs> and it was incredible. Um, so it took me a while to find my feet there because I was just I was just so intimidated by other people who I always thought were more worldly than I was. Were you thrown in the deep end? How did you get the sort of runs on the board? Um, I started actually, the job I was offered, I, re- I tried out or did a little test to be a re- uh, researcher on the show and I didn't get that job. But the executive producer, Harvey Shaw, asked me to be his assistant or his secretary. And I was so dumb, I didn't even know how to do that. I didn't know how to turn a typewriter on. I didn't know how to do anything. Um, I remember I wrote a letter and it was all scrunched in the top left-hand corner of the page. I must have looked mentally deficient. (laughs) (laughs) But the timing is everything because two researchers resigned on the same day. And so there was a spot and there was me and I slotted in to be a researcher. But then I wanted to be a reporter as well and I auditioned to be a reporter and the Wonderworld auditions were legendary. Their news crews would come and cover it because there'd be lines of boys and girls, whichever job was up for grabs, snaking around the building and we were told we had to wear jeans so our figures could be seen and horrendously intimidating because there were models, there was this, there was that. And I got through to the final maybe ten and then I was told I was too broad across the beam. 
for a kid's show. No. And it was just terrible. It, it That haunted me for so long. It really did. Since then, I mean, Harvey Shaw, the executive producer, has been a big supporter of mine. Simon himself has tried to find me jobs as a reporter on Wonderworld in the years since, but I just said I'm out I'm out now because I was so wounded. Wow, that's such a tough – how old were you when you – I would have been 23, 24. Yeah, that kind of thing is a tough – I mean, I can't imagine these days anybody saying anything that explicit, but the idea that the – look of somebody doesn't in some way come into the mm. overall decision. If you think that's not the case, then it's pretty naive. But it takes some uh, getting your head around. To be told. <laughs> to be told. And, and maybe it wasn't said as harsh. They were the words that were said, but maybe it was, oh, look, you know, I, I heard that some, I heard, it wasn't said to my face, I heard that someone had said to someone, to someone, someone, that that's why it didn't happen. So did you then think to yourself, well, that's me done on the reporting That's me side? done. No, I thought that's me done on this show. All right. I think personally it really affected me but it didn't stop me wanting to be a presenter or a reporter. So you did finish up at the show? Yes, I did. That? Oh, right. so, so you quit? Yeah, I didn't want to oh, wow. I didn't want to go back to being a researcher and staying there after that. I thought you get to and we all feel this in our jobs, you get to a tipping point and you go, yeah, I'm out and that was definitely the tipping point for me. And how long had you been at the show since? Uh, Probably um I think a year, two years, something like that. Right. And in in terms of like even now shows that you work on with your breakfast show, there's producers behind the, the stage there on the living room, there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes. Do you like the the fact that you came up starting through a producing uh, um, because I think it, it helps to give you an understanding of what goes into behind the scenes of the shows that you now front. Oh, absolutely. And also I was never a, a pushy, ambitious person and so I would never have just turned up and said, I deserve to be in front of the camera or give me a go, give me a go. I was never that person. Mm. So for me to start as a segment producer on the midday show and it was Ray Martin who said, why don't we put you in front of the camera here? So I knew Ray, I knew the show, I knew the cameraman, the sound recordist. So all that stuff made that transition for me to do the occasional story much easier than me turning up out of nowhere saying I'd like to be in front of the camera. Mm. It was it was a much easier journey for me to go from the back of the camera to the front than coming through the side door and straight on camera. I don't think I'd have had the nerves to do it. I feel like that approach is is a healthy one. I think sometimes there is a sense that you have to push, 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 push yourself onto things. And I think there are plenty of people in the business who do that. And I think in the, I'm the same. I'm, it's not really the way I'm built and I, things have probably moved a lot slower for me because of that. But do you feel, I sort of feel like it, tends to give you a bit more longevity, that mm. approach, because the pushiness might get you that initial job because it, it works with one person that doesn't mind that approach. But I find that approach kind of grates people and they'd actually rather you be really talented and for somebody like Ray Martin to turn around and go, this girl's got something, mm. that there's more weight in that. Yeah, maybe. And and I would look on enviously at, at people who knew themselves well enough and were confident enough to say, Bang! I should I should be here. Can you give me a go? Mm. I I thought oh, I I didn't know where you got that skill set to be to put yourself in the front like that. So I think you're right. It's it's a slower burn to come the other way, but you learn that other skill set along the way. And yes, I didn't have to step up and prove myself. Mm. I had other people saying, "Hey, why don't you give this a go?" I like the old under promise over deliver 
thing. That's my approach, mm. you know. I, if I, I feel like if I go, I can do that, mm. I have a sense that, oh, no, now I'm going to stuff it yes. up and everybody's going to go, no, you can't. Yes. But if somebody says, do you want to give this a try? And I go, oh, I'll try it. Then you don't, you know, you're not over-promising something that you can't turn up and do. Yeah, which I, I think me. you're right. And I think when I look at the industry, there's both both those sorts of people who end up in the the mush together mm. but that that one approach doesn't necessarily work for everybody what happened so you ended up at the midday show but you were at good morning australia before that was that uh, i was just doing a f- actually with sheridan jobbins from wonderworld we started a little production company when i left wonderworld well she did i pretended i knew what i was doing <laughs> but i really had no idea <laughs> but so i she was doing some stories on good morning australia and i would produce some stories on good morning australia this is in the Gordon Elliott days with, and Carrie Ann. Yeah, right. And also during that time we were production assistants for a variety of film clips. That was fantastic. Oh, that's cool. Sherry's husband at the time was um, a cameraman for a number of film clips and we would do the producing. We'd find the locations and we'd, for example, Flame Trees for Cold Chisel Song. Did you? I did a story recently with Jimmy Barnes where <laughs> I had to own a mistake that I'd made in that film clip that has that at the time I thought I'd never get over. What, what was the mistake? Well, I'm so naive I didn't know at the time that apparently Jimmy was leaving the band and he says since then he found out that a clip was being made for Flame Trees when he saw it on Rage. But so we filmed, we found the location in Oberon, this small country town not far from Bathurst, mm. and all the other band members were there but Jimmy wasn't there. But because we had to have Jimmy performing somehow, it was my job to get a VHS tape of Jimmy singing with the band and we'd have it in the pub that the guys that's on the in the background of the pub where the protagonist is hanging out. Right. So I get the tape, we put it in and there's just time code all along the bottom so these white spinning numbers all along the bottom. I've completely cocked it up. <sighs> and so then in front of the television, I've just put a piece of black tape over the numbers and I haven't even covered all of them up. And you can see this, it's just an it's funny now because who gives a rat? Yeah. And I mentioned it to Jimmy Barnes and I showed him the film clip recently but it meant everything to me at the time that this to me was a major blunder and I thought I'd never get over it. Whereas now I can look at the film clip and I can laugh and say, see that? That was my mistake. <laughs> That's a great piece of history yeah, now. Yeah, it's a great piece of history. <laughs> that cock up. I'm going to go back and look at the, <laughs> uh, the film clip now and check that out. I've never and noticed enjoy it. it. Yeah. So how did the job on the Midday Show come about then? Um... I think I heard that they were that Ray Martin was taking over the midday show, mm-hmm. and I think I heard they were looking for segment producers, and uh, I applied and got a job as a segment producer, and it was so exciting. Mike Walsh had headed up to do the a Tonight Show. Ray Martin was taking over the midday show. What a great guy Ray Martin is. I still just rate him so highly. Um, and he was so lovely. We all fell in love with Ray and we all wanted to do our best for Ray. And journalistically, learned so much from him. Just with him, we he, there were like six stories that had to be produced on the day. And he'd say, I just don't want to look foolish. Give me all the background information so I'm not surprised by anything. And, you know, just f- give me a little bit of this, a little bit of that. And he'd sit there and answer all the letters that were written to him just as a a person of huge integrity and as a great journalist, just watching him in this new forum, which it was for him, was was so interesting. Isn't that nice mm. to know that that goes into the background of that show, to know that somebody was like, I want to know where I'm at. I don't want to just read an auto cue and be surprised yep. in the moment. I want to, you know, have a bit of time to research. Come and brief me and give me the information and let me sit with it for a while or you give me the book or whatever. He was so thorough. 
with all of it. The other great thing about that I think is creating the kind of environment where the people who are responsible for building the bits and pieces that exist around you as a host are rooting for you because you're a decent human. Mm. Like that's a really smart, I'm sure he's just doing it because he's a nice person, but really smart way to do things. We'd have done anything for him. Exactly. Uh, And I guess also seeing that early in your career, you go, oh, okay, I know what it feels like to be treated this way. I'm probably going to, you know, do that in the future if I'm ever in that kind of position. Yeah, well, I just just to see how um, respectful he was of us. And with live television, things are going to go wrong, but no one was ever in trouble. No one was ever scared that you were going to get into trouble. We were just, we were a gang and it was a great feeling. And yes, yeah, so I, I guess subliminally, a lot of those lessons have been learned. Mm. So how, how did that, you said he saw something in you. How long had you been on the show before he sort of said, I reckon you could be on camera? Um, I can't remember, maybe a year. Right. And then there are a couple of stories that I went to do. These are incredible stories. Mm. I'm almost scared to tell you my sources. <laughs> <laughs> there was a story about a woman who dressed all the cats up and one was, <laughs> one was Liberace and one was Boy George and Boy George had a little hat on and it was pulling the cat's eyes back and you just see that it was going to go for her throat. <laughs> and there was a bride and groom at the end where you put them to sleep in their little bed. <laughs> Um, and so those Please sorts of stories. Please still got the VHS Actually, I think Harley found it somewhere and I look at myself and I've got bed hair and I'm wearing ping pong ball earrings <laughs> and it was just dreadful. And then uh, the, the midday show went to England to cover Andrew and Fergie's wedding. Goodness. And so in London, while we were there for the week to do the, the cover the wedding, I also did a couple of stories in London about how London was gearing up for the wedding. So that was an another heady time. Can you remember the very first time you were on camera? Was it the I used to try or? I used to write myself into some Wonderworld stories, I remember. There was a story where Tim they were going to do a story with Neil and Tim Finn and I had such a crush on Tim Finn that I wrote myself into the story that as if the researcher me was wearing a wedding dress and was dreaming of marrying Tim. And he's <laughs> <creepy>. <laughs> so creepy. What would he have thought? And I was counting down the days till we did it. It's a fortnight, it's 10 days. It's, I was so excited. And then on the day he pulled out and Neil's there and I probably pulled a face at Neil all day going, mm. <laughs> thanks very much. Yeah. <laughs> so it's the other one. So you never got to be in the... Oh, I was still in the story. Oh, you were. But, but with a disappointed face. <laughs> <laughs> no offence, Neil, who now I have far more of a crush on than Tim. Tim lost out big time. Big Let's time. just say that. Big time. So when you were doing those early pieces to camera, it, did you feel comfortable doing that? Did you feel like, oh, I have no idea what's going on? Did Not you... really. I've always... Uh, interesting question, actually. You haven't thought about that. But even now with an auto cue and things like that, I feel comfortable with it and I don't think I've – I know it's a learned skill but I don't remember being there a moment, being a moment where I thought I learned it. I remember being anxious about my first piece to camera with Beyond 2000. I was doing a story in Mount Isa on telemedicine and so we we're in a, uh, an Indigenous uh, local hospital and they could transmit to the local, you know, you know somewhere in Sydney or somewhere in Melbourne if they needed to see a, a doctor. Mm. And – I had written a piece to camera, I rehearsed it in my head like I was learning a play and then I think I delivered it in about like a chipmunk just to get it out of the way. <laughs> and uh, so I remember thinking I've 
haven't done a good job there. Yeah. But after a while, and particularly with Beyond 2000, all these scientific terms and things, mm. um, I can write now a very detailed piece of anything and commit it to memory and then it's gone. Mm. But that was a skill I learnt from those days. So I think on, on a trip with Beyond 2000, you just had to do three pieces to camera every day for eight weeks. So you just got used to it. And I would never watch the stuff back because we're overseas and filming and you just it was your job. You didn't have to watch yourself on TV that night or any of that stuff. Mm. So I didn't have to torture myself with how it looked. I just did it. When you started out doing those pieces, did you think, oh, yeah, this is the side of the camera I'd prefer to be on? I think so. I've never – I've become more relaxed over the years. I remember being quite tortured by everything early on. And I, I didn't allow myself many minutes of going – many times where I went, how great's this? I feel I feel those – I allow myself those moments much more now than I used to. It's good. I remember when I got the Wonderworld job, I went to see Mental as Anything at uh, Sydney University with some friends. And I, even though I got a job as the, assist, as the producer's assistant – Secretary, <laughs> I remember thinking my life begins now. Wow. I thought this is what I want to be doing. That's um, cool. But usually in the heat of filming, working, doing it, I was busy filming, doing it, working it and didn't sit back and go, how lucky am I? Whereas mm. I feel that much more now. Well, that's awesome. So uh, after the midday show, you worked on that for how many years? Probably about two years, I think. Two years. And then you went to a show called Extra Dimensions? Extra Dimensions. Do you remember Richard Neville? He passed away not so long ago. He no. was part of the um, the early Australian group that went over to England, Clive James and um, Jermaine Greer. Right. And he was part of forming a, a very edgy newspaper at the time. This is years before I knew him. Mm. The, the, you know, they were the, is the expression enfant terrible, you know, oh, the yeah. naughty children <laughs> yeah. of, Australia, of Australia going over to London and taking London by storm. And I think Geoffrey Robertson represented them in the old Bailey on charges of profanity or whatever it might have been with the right. publication they put out. So he was always this incredible forward-thinking crazy hippie thinker. Mm. And then when he came back to Australia, he, he used to come on the midday show and he was still this handsome, erudite, wide-viewed thinker. And he talked to Ray and Mike Walsh about a different way to look at society, which kind of in a way I guess was the human potential movement, but talking about let's look globally at money, let's look globally at the environment, let's look small in our environment, you know, small thinking and then think to the world, although they were the first beginnings of all this global thinking. Mm. And so it was a lot of people like him that probably had been big drug-taking hippies in the 60s who started to think how can we incorporate those elements into corporate world. And so then he started a show called Extra Dimensions and I knew him as a researcher on Wonder on um, Midday Show Midday. and he asked me to join the show and I was so out of my depth. I'm so glad he asked me to join the show but I was so out of my depth. And how, I, how come? Because you'd had a lot of experience by then. Yes, but not in front of the camera. And so this was before Beyond 2000 and it was made by the same people who made Beyond 2000. We were travelling around America doing stories on people who were in their way changing the world and some of the stories were amazing, rammed earth houses, permaculture, but also immortalists, people who thought that on a cellular level they were going to live forever. 
and people who told my past lives by playing a harp up to the cashing records in the whatever, whatever. So and were you the solo presenter on no, this? There are, there? No, there are about four or five of us. Right. And everyone else seemed so much smarter and together and forward-thinking than I was. I felt like a giant imposter on that show because I really had A, no idea what I was doing, B, no idea of this big human potential movement. Mm. So I was out of depth intellectually as well as the job I was doing. They never made me feel like that. That's, that's how I felt on that show. And the producer I travelled with was older than me and I remember we were doing a story uh, on a ropes course, remember the big the ropes course of the eighties, oh, yes, yeah. where people could corporate people would <laughs> jump off logs and grab onto ropes, and this was an allegory for trying new, you know, teaching old dogs new tricks. And I covered a couple of ropes courses, and the producer was trying was writing a piece to camera with me about how the American car industry was failing, the Japanese car industry was taking over at the time. And these car executives had to reinvent themselves. I had no worldview on any of this. And he said to me, you really start, you, you, you really need to think more and to know more. And at the time I was hugely, well, not offended, but thrown by this. And yet he's absolutely right. I couldn't have known more at that age. It takes age to, you know, that's what living's about. Mm. I just had to do more living. But it was interesting that that all came to a head while I was doing a ropes course, which was about, you know, learning more and reinventing yourself. Well, um, we've gone from the ropes course to the Japanese car industry to all, your revelation. Oh, my God, I just wanted to chew down on a cyanide capsule and fall into a heap. So I think- I, all those things, it's only 20, 30 years later I look back and I see what he was talking about. But mm. at the time, I couldn't have been more. I couldn't have been. But I'm appreciative that they took a, a gamble on, on me who knew nothing. It's scary, I think, at that age and when you're younger in this industry and if you're not terribly, not necessarily worldly, but you're not very mm. well read. Like working with somebody like Paul Murray, he was the kind of kid oh. that... <laughs> I'd be intimidated. Yeah, he was reading, you know, the only paper he didn't read in Year 6 was the Finn Review. Like there are adults that don't read the, read the Finn Review. So he has always been a consumer. So even by the time he left school, he had a wealth of general political knowledge. And when we worked together, I just realised, my God, I know nothing. I had no interest in politics or history when I was a kid and all of a sudden I'm doing these kind of topics and I'm commentating on television about things that I realise I am sitting at home in front of the computer for hours educating myself from scratch about things. And you're right, you feel this sense of terror and imposter syndrome that you really can't get out of you until you've put in the time to educate yourself, but you can't do that in five minutes. No. You know, it's, it's it took me 30 years. That's it. It takes so long. I feel like even after maybe 10 years of doing sort of the commentary stuff, it's only now I feel like, okay, I've got a bit of residual knowledge that I'm now, be- I don't feel like I'm starting from scratch every time I, I do. But when you are young in the business and you're sort of thrown into the deep and you're never going to say no to these opportunities. Well, uh, you want to, but you can't. You can't. You can't. But even now I feel sometimes on air on radio we'll be talking about a topic and I think I'll have moments of who gives a rat's what I think. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of that is this business, right? Because we are asked to comment on things that we have zero expertise in. Mm. We have no right to comment. I mean, how can we solve the problem in Syria? You know, like, we, yeah. but, but it's something you're asked about if there's something that's in the news. And it's interesting because I think sometimes some people. Go, go in. I don't know how you feel about this, but I feel quite a weight 
with that, I think to myself, well, if I'm going to add something to the conversation, I better try and add something decent. And I think sometimes people just go on and say, oh, here's a pithy line or something or mm. other that'll get us to the next point and that'll do me. But there is a sense of responsibility there. You're adding to an important conversation and sometimes you do feel horrifically underqualified. Oh, absolutely. And three hours of live radio every day. There are many times, you know, it's happened about 12 times during this very chat with you, <laughs> where I open my mouth at the beginning of a sentence and just hope that words will form <laughs> and the sentence will end. <laughs> <laughs> So if you can add that you're saying something useful on top of that, that's a bonus, that's but a that bonus. doesn't always happen. No. Do you ever have that? It's so funny actually that you say that because I have those moments so often. I used to have it on the radio all the time where I would almost levitate and mm. see myself mm. talking the things that were coming out and then at the end when I get to the end I'd almost want to give myself a little clap because I don't know how I got there. It would be so easy on live radio if you have an out-of-body experience just to almost, it's like if you're in a canoe, you think, how far do I push it to fall out? <laughs> Is this wet paint? I'll touch that. But you're halfway through a sentence, you think there's nothing to stop me just going burko right yeah. now. <laughs> and you have to all the will in the world to be your mature grown-up self and finish the sentence. That's it. It's a lot. There's a lot of pressure mm. there. There's a lot of pressure. So extra dimensions that only lasted one season? Lasted one, it may surprise you to hear that, Rachel. <laughs> it lasted one season. And then the production company who were making that show were also making Beyond 2000. And so that's how then I was invited along. It's all timing. Someone left at that same time. And once again, it was another job where I thought, please don't ask me, please don't ask me because I can't say no and it sounds very scary. Mm. Can I just lie at home on a pillow for a little while? (laughs) So all all these cruxes of change And I try and say this to the kids if something happens with them. I say it's always scary when change happens and sometimes you can be tempted to say I don't want it. But I I did a hang gliding thing in New Zealand a number of years ago and I love that feeling. You run towards the edge of the the cliff and that liberation when you jump off and it goes against human nature to run towards the end of the cliff. But once you do that, then that's where the excitement is. Mm. So being asked to do things like beyond 2000 I thought oh god please no and yet how amazing that lift off was that show was just huge and even mm. now anybody who grew up during that time you can, I'm I still make beyond 2000 jokes you know where mm. you sort of talk, where you reference the fact that like where are our flying cars because that yes, was you know absolutely. and all that kind of stuff and when when you you merely mention oh beyond 2000 told us there was going to be flying cars everyone's like oh that show it was just huge it was and i think once again it was the days where there was one tv in the house yeah. everyone watched it but uh, that show was the first Australian program that was sold all around the world. It was sold to 68 countries. Wow. And on one of my last trips with Beyond 2000, I was recognised in Israel, in Kathmandu, in New York. Um, it, everyone had – it was on satellite television everywhere. Oh, I and know everyone that. always wanted to boast about their technology. So you could go to Russia, you could go to Eastern Germany, you could go to Cuba, to places that you, as any other journalist or even as a tourist, would be very, it wouldn't be as easy to get in. Um, so it was an amazing way to see the world. But so, yes, you mention it to anyone of a certain age and they'll remember watching it when they were at school. And, uh, and as I said, even now I'll have someone come up who grew up in Iran, in Iran and they watched it and they'll say to me, I remember watching you on Beyond 2000. 
Did that show change things for you from a profile perspective? I mean, obviously you're being recognised in Kathmandu, so mm. it has to have changed things. But <laughs> was, was that – I used that to my benefit in a huge way, as you can <laughs> yes. imagine, a free yak milk that day. Of course, of course. Why wouldn't you milk it? Um, but did that change life for you in a way? At the time I wasn't aware of it because I was away for six months of the year doing those stories. So I wasn't home at the Logies and I wasn't home for, you know, when we were home we were just scripting the stories and going away again. And so I wasn't aware of it at the time mm. but I, I think it did but I, it wasn't um, it wasn't sort of, oh, wow, the heady days when you walked down the street and I wasn't the Beatles by any means. Yeah. Did, did the What was the schedule? So you were saying you were away for six months. Oh, it's of the was year. It it was, it's an incredible schedule. We'd occasionally meet up with people from 60 Minutes Overseas and they couldn't believe the schedule that we had. So we'd go away for maybe eight weeks at a time and in that time you'd do 22 stories. So every you'd film one day film half the next day, travel that night. And that was, you might do four countries in that time. I would pack wow. a bag the night before trying to pack that bag because you could be going from Africa in on the equator to Canada in the middle of winter. I don't know if that makes sense. But you'd be, you'd be spanning all seasons, yeah. all places, all whatevers. And trying to jam my shoulder pads into that suitcase <sighs> was really hard. <laughs> So that's the stuff I struggled with was feeling comfortable in my own skin. I felt comfortable with the camera, mm. but for me to feel comfortable with how I looked on camera was much harder and I didn't like watching it back and I was I dressed badly and didn't know what I was doing grooming-wise. Mm. These were the days before stylists and, and also we're away, you know, we're on the road and if your hair dry doesn't work that day, your hair dry doesn't work that day and you don't have access to an iron and all all that stuff. I I didn't feel um, comfortable on, in, ca- on, in front of the camera in terms of appearance probably for a long time and probably even now I really watch myself back. Because I can, I can see, oh, that's a good story, but I go, oh, look at my hair or whatever. Yeah, but those kind of insecurities that we all have, that's probably another point to like we were saying before about being not so worldly when you start in telly young and having to work on that side of yourself. The other side is that personal insecurity thing where you are on show and on display and if you start quite young and you haven't built up that armour where you go, oh, well, I'm completely together inside so it's fine, I don't give a crap, which is something that you kind of you don't get to until much later in your life yeah. when you've kind of done a lot of stuff and you've been broken down and built yourself back up and that's the kind of life experience that you need to feel that way about yourself. It makes sense that you would feel a little vulnerable seeing yourself because you're not quite ready to not judge yourself. But rather than using that, I've always been bad, as I said, at looking back at myself. I'm not good at learning from it. So rather than looking at how I looked and thinking, well, if I did my hair a bit better, if oh look, that's those clothes don't suit me. If I looked at it and analysed it, I could have improved. Mm. But I chose to not look at it and not care. But of course I still cared. Mm. But sometimes I think I, I, I'm just not built that way. I don't, mm. you know, I find it very, if there was not a hair and makeup chair, then I will be arriving the way that I attempt to put myself together, which is fairly poorly. Like I just don't have the skills nor the eye. It's not my thing. No, I'm, I'm the same. Yeah. It's, it's, it's not my field of interest to look at 
that side of myself mm. and I'm aware that I'm not naive. I know that that is a big part of the job but I, I it took a while for, for that for me to catch up there, I think. Mm. I think, yeah. I mean, it's an important part to get to where you don't really care. I don't know if you ever don't care entirely but certainly that you're more comfortable with looking crappy because it, sometimes you look crappy. Mm. It happens. That's right. You're going to look fat, you're going to look crappy, you're yeah. going to look tired. Yeah. And even if you don't look fat, you're going to think, God, that looks terrible. That's it. And especially when you're out on the road doing mm. things like Beyond 2000, like I just went to um, overseas for the project and you've got no hair, like you've got no hair dry, you've got, you're out, it's, you're sweating your ass off. Can't you, control the lighting. You can't control the lighting. Your hair's all over the joint. I, You go, you just, there's got to be a point where you just go, what can I do? I did, I jumped out of an aeroplane to do a story for Beyond 2000. It was my last ones and I had the worst camel toe ever in the harness through a pair of thick pants. That's how bad the harness was. It's my excuse. And I just, you know, just I, I, I just kept trying to hoik it down but it was just at some point you go, that looks dreadful but what can I do? It was through thick trousers. <laughs> and I wonder whether other people would have insisted on different editing. I don't know. But there or it was. like a little frill or something That's like a skirt. <laughs> Maybe some pixelation. <laughs> we'll fix it in post. That's it. Can we get this woman a towel no, or no. something to tie around herself? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. It's. You, I mean, there are those moments where you just go... I can't afford to care because I've jumped out of an aeroplane and I don't want to have to care about that. <laughs> I'm surprised you couldn't hear the giant whistle on the way down. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. So for that show and that uh, for Beyond 2000 and that sort of schedule, was your lead time up, like were you working the full six-month planning? Like were you producing the segments that you were hosting as well? Yeah, so I, I, we did go away with a producer mm-hmm. but um, I would probably script the stories then when I was home. Yep. And then we'd set out. So we'd do maybe two major trips a year plus your studio hostings in between and local stories as well. So it was pretty full on. But unlike 60 Minutes when we'd meet up with them overseas, we knew that we were away from here to here and at the end of the year we are going away from then to then, mm. whereas they would be away for maybe two weeks and uh, they had unlimited credit cards. We couldn't believe it. Oh, we had to ration our washing bill and things like that and our per diems. But when I talk to people who travel now, they're getting the same – money to go away as we did you know television has really not progressed in 30 years yeah um so we knew where we were going to be throughout most of the year um but it was there was a really hard long trip do you feel like that's the show you learnt the most on about telly or was there a a job that you've done that you thought oh this is where i've really hit my stride Mm, that's probably the one i learnt most about television I'm imagining it was interesting working then with Andrew though when I worked with him on the Denton show before he joined it with each other in radio I joined his tonight show mm. and that's the first time I'd worked on a comedy program so I felt like I started again and that was when my imposter syndrome do you know, make myself sound so open and interesting that's when my imposter syndrome really kicked in so I'd done beyond 2000 I felt comfortable that I knew all this I can do lifestyle television I can travel and produce a story that's blah 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 but I really started again asking people to think I was funny. And that was Andrew saying that in you, Well, right? we knew each other from our old uni days mm. and he had said, I know you can do this. 
why don't you come and do this? But an audience didn't know I could do that yeah, and right. I didn't know I could do that. And I, that was, I had a segment called Sampling so that I didn't have to just make comedy out of the air. Mm. I would source products, weird products from around the world and then I'd, we'd have a segment about them. So it was, I'd write things about the thing. Um, and they were, oh, God, I loved that show and it was absolutely great but I had to get past my sense of why would these people laugh at me when I've been doing this or laugh with me, hopefully, when I've been this serious person on Beyond 2000 before this. And I used to see it all the time. Even in radio, people would come in for interviews, overseas guests, whatever, and they'd been told that Andrew's comedic genius. So Andrew was pre-funny, and which he was, bloody genius, and I was intimidated by that as well. Great friend of mine, but to work alongside that comedy brain. Mm. But if it, it, he was pre-funny where I never was, people didn't give me the benefit of the doubt comedically. You can see when people come in with an open heart to laugh at something, you have to work that much harder at it if they're not expecting you to be funny. You didn't think that because they weren't expecting you then you could be more surprising? So they That's another way of looking at it, but I never saw, <laughs> saw it right. Like you had the more pessimistic yeah, approach right. at the time. <laughs> with my dour face. Why aren't they laughing? Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, so it took a while for I think people to have to be given permission to think I was funny. Did you when did you ever give yourself permission to think you were funny? There were times where I thought I'm loving working on this show. This show is the is everyone's talking about this show and isn't it great to be on it? Mm. But because I never felt that with Beyond 2000 because I was away all the time, but I never felt I, I'm deserving comedically maybe mm. on that show. And it's interesting that when I worked with Andrew on radio, he's a very generous, great friend to me and professionally wonderful. But it's only when I then went to work with Jonesy at WS that I realised I had a radio brain, right. that I developed a radio brain. That's a nice point to get to when you start oh. to realise, oh, this is I can do this. I can do this because I. It wasn't Andrew. It was me that ma- that thought when I'm with him, this is amazing. Yeah, didn't occur to me that I knew things too. It's such a nice. It was thing a to revelation because mm. then you really feel like a partner. You feel like somebody yeah. who's bringing something to the table. That's right. And Andrew would always say to me, "You're, you're a good storyteller. You're great at this. You're great at that." But it, I never. I never thought I was the the organiser of the break or in, in charge of the content or the generator necessarily, even though I may have been those things. I didn't give myself um, that badge until I was working with Jonesy and thought, actually, you know what, I'm, I'm those things here too. I think if somebody you're working with is very skilled at those things, there can be a tendency to sit back a bit and say, okay, well, you run those things. Mm. And it's not even, it's not like you're not bringing enough to the table, but you know that they are good at running those things. So you can kind of step back. And sometimes if you're not as deeply involved in that every day, it can feel like, oh God, am I doing enough here? Mm. Am I bringing enough? And so then when you sort of step out on your own and you realize that you can be responsible for those things, Nobody likes to feel like it's not like, and obviously Andrew never made you feel like it was second fiddle. It's your own internal mm. sort of feeling, but you can't help but feel a little like, oh, am I doing enough? Am I providing yes. enough? Well, but also, you know, he was Andrew. He was this, as I said, comedic genius. It was enough for me to be uh, to work to work with him mm. there. Um, but having to 
create a new show with Jonesy was a different thing again. Mm. Well, then you're sort of standing on your own two feet then, mm. aren't you? You're coming in as an equal rather than coming in as kind of Andrew's sidekick or yeah. Um, yeah. that kind of thing. And, and in that respect, that, that's been quite liberating, I think. Mm. This, this, well, it's been 12 years now working with Jonesy, but that – um, that's maybe maybe this is the most in my career where you like to think you get better at this stuff where I felt and radio changes every day but by and large I feel I'm in control of it. That's amazing. Mm. So you, when you went and started to do the radio with Andrew, you'd done a lot of telly by then. Mm. Was that a difficult transition or did you find it quite natural? Um, once again, that was like starting again. So mm. I started again comedically with Andrew, then starting again radio, just learning the structure. And, and I, I, I remember before we started, I thought, how do you know when to end? Yeah. And he, it's like doing a jazz song. How do you know when that ends? That's it. So, but That's half the mystery of it where everybody's looking, how do we get out of here? How will we ever yeah. know what happens? Yeah. And, and he said, don't worry, that's my job right at the beginning. And that freed me from thinking uh, that I had to control the package of it. Yeah, right. Because I didn't I, – I, I, it was so alien I didn't know what happened. Mm. And so he said, nope, that's my job. You, you you know, we all play in here but don't panic. I'll wrap it up. Wow, that's a big – I mean, yes, he knows how to do that and that's his skill set but that's – uh, that's a big responsibility for one person to be responsible for. I've worked on some shows where where one guy's the out guy, you know, he's like, okay, we get us out. But I always think, gosh, if, if you have to do that every mm. time. Well, he probably in the end didn't, but he was saying that to say to me, you don't relax. have to relax. Right. We'll, you'll learn all this as we go. Yeah. But he was just saying don't lose sleep tonight over that. Mm. It's so nice to have had that relationship that started early on at university to have him have that faith in you because relationships in this business are one of the hardest things to come across, like proper good working relationships where you're like, hey, we're a team and you look out for mm. me and I look out for you and and it's nice when somebody wants a, thinks you're good and could do this and also wants you to win in a way. I, I always get sad when I hear that great duos have broken up as friends. I, I can't imagine being this close to someone and that small intimate space that you share, that headspace that you share, that's really sad that, that you get to a point where you're not talking to each other. I'd hate that. Well, you're also now, there was a time in radio I remember where they were very, in the Wendy and Mooney days, when they were kind of very pro relationships that weren't healthy because they thought it bred a kind of competitiveness and a sort of angst that was really good to listen to. And I think once when I remember when Hamish and Andy sort of started and the bosses started to think a bit differently because all of a sudden you had this like couple of blokes, at least in Austeria where I was working at the time, you had this couple of blokes who were super happy to go and meet clients and were really delightful to work for and sat down in meetings and listened to how to improve their show and took notes and and thought, oh, and genuinely adored each other and got along and wanted to spend time together. And, and I think that sort of made people look differently, or at least the bosses that I worked with, they looked at teams differently and thought, oh, actually, 
I don't think that needs to exist. And and when you're in a team, it always works better when you've got each other's back. And, and I think HG and Roy broke the mould with mm. this too, that one of them would say something, the other one would say yes and yeah. take it even further, that mm. they could love each other, that it didn't have to be, well, you take that position, therefore I have to go the other way. Mm. And you're right, but I think that was that old stereo thing of the 80s where girl and boy, that whole battle of the sexes. Oh, yeah. And I love that Andrew never made us never. We never fell into those categories, and yeah. we don't. I don't with Jonesy either, where the girl says this and the boy would think this. Mm. Um, you don't have to have disagreements. You don't have to be on the other two sides of an argument. I just think that that's be grown up. Do you feel? I mean, I guess in some ways in radio, that Andrew De- the Andrew Denton show also Doug Mulray certainly work, having worked at Triple M for a long time. Those are shows that that the hardcore fans recall all the time. You know, you've done the t- a TV show like Beyond Two Thousand where everybody can recall and will be able to recall for the rest of time. It's a pretty big deal to be a part of. You know, eventually when um, you and Jonesy wrap up, like that's been a staple show in Sydney. Um, for, for so many years, you've been part of so many big shows that a lot of people know about. I, I've got goosebumps with you saying that because I—that's what a privilege that mm. is. What a privilege! And uh, Andrew and I talk about this of how it was to be on air the morning after September 11. Oh yes, and um, he's kept a lot of the emails from that time. It was my second day back from maternity leave, and I had a new, like a four-month-old baby up at night feeding a baby. Harley says, look at this. We're watching planes go into the buildings Mm. and going to work the next day. You know, we were telling people that the world had changed and that we just opened up the phone lines. We're on air till midday and just the things people were saying and that's what the emails bear out to in the weeks after. The, The fear, the love, the grief, the anxiety, the anger. It was a microcosm of how we all felt but people will still say to me, I remember you being on air when that happened and that you gave it a context. Mm. And because morning television was, wasn't what it is now. Mm. That was, there was sort of stiff and augmented television. Um, there was no to and fro. And radio was the great tribal drum, as we say, more than television. It really, you, you talk and we listen and it's all, we're all in it together. But also when my son recently turned 16 and the number of people, I get weepy when I think about it, the number of people that said, I remember when he was born, I remember I was in the car driving to work when he was born, to have touched people's lives, for me to be a touchstone for people to remember their own lives. Mm. But even in small ways, not small ways, but when my dog died, the emails, the letters that I got then because people could tell me what how they felt when their dog died. Mm. That's the beauty of radio. That's what it is. And to have people feel that they know me, that they've lived through these parts of my life, that my life stories mirror their life stories, um, I, I, what a privilege that is. It's amazing. It's so easy sometimes to underestimate because you're not seeing people in front of you every day. You're in a studio with your co-host and you're doing the show. But it's, it's easy to forget how much of a companion you become for people, how much they get to know you, how many years they've been setting their clock radio to your voice and waking up and getting ready and they know when you do this segment on your show, that's the time I have to get into the shower. When I hear yeah. this, I have to leave to get the bus. You know, you become such a staple in somebody's life and – when you've done a show for over a decade, like that's you've you've 
some people have grown up with you. They've yeah. gone through breakups, marriages with you. They've had children grow with you. It's like you've been a significant part of people's lives for a long time. And it's easy sometimes to not think about that because you're getting up, going to work, sitting in a studio. But it's those moments where you do get those emails or you hear from people mm. and you think, oh, my God. I met a woman recently. I was doing um, a charity thing for the spinal unit at Royal North Shore Hospital. And there's a woman there who said her husband's in a wheelchair and she said, you know, he had an accident. She said she was driving up from Wollongong every day straight after his accident and those early weeks and months where they didn't know what it meant, didn't know what would happen, assessing how different their lives would be. And she said she'd listen to us in the car every morning on the way up and it's that constancy of a familiar voice, Mm. all those markers, as you say, of here's the day, here's what's going on. And for her it was the comforting hum of our familiarity mm. that made such a difference to her and I thought exactly that that day. We're going to work, make a cup of tea, I'm yawning, I'll have a bowl of cereal at 7 o'clock, what are we talking about today, da-da-da. You, you need, it's, it's a wonderful thing to be reminded of the impact that that can have. I, I had Jonesy on this show a while ago and he was talking about when uh, the show started with you guys and how he was over at WSFM and he was uh, basically begging you to come over and how there was no one he wanted to work with other than you. Um, do you remember that time at all being tugged over by him and what you what you felt at that time? Very conflicted at that time. I had a new baby, so I had a two-year-old and a four-month-old, I remember. And I was doing a show on the ABC and television. What a relief. You can work two days a week. Yeah. What a dream. <laughs> <laughs> and they were going to – if they renewed that show, I was going to say no to Jonesy because I – the dailiness of radio is just hard, as mm. you know, Rachel. It's the unrelenting everydayness of mm. it is hard. And so I thought, please, ABC, renew Mondo Thingo so I don't have to think about this other offer because I didn't want to do both things. Yeah. And the ABC didn't renew. <laughs> and I remember going, bugger, <laughs> bugger poo. <laughs> and then I thought maybe they'll make a terrible offer. And I can say, look, it's not worth my while to leave these two little babies at home and come in. But annoyingly, they didn't. It was a <laughs> it was a decent offer, and I thought I'll give it two years and put the money aside for school fees. Great, <laughs> for these, yep. For these tiny new toddlers, yeah. <laughs> for their daycare fees, and then and then I'll have done it. And here we are, twelve years later, and it's my favourite job. And I work the rest of my life or most of my career around it so I can keep doing it. The daily grind of radio is tough, but one of the things that makes it easier is if you have somebody sitting across from you where you're like, we've got this. Oh, that's – I couldn't do it otherwise. Yeah. I couldn't do this again. Yeah. I don't want a new radio husband. I couldn't do it. Mm. We, you know, Jones and I will hold hands, look each other in the eyes and say, thank God it's you. I feel terrible today. I feel great today. Let's laugh today. Let's, you know, we laugh, we fight, we feud – but there's no way I could do this with anyone else now. No way. I told him uh, when I was chatting to him that he, when you guys won the commercial radio award for best on air team, it's the only time I've ever seen anybody win where everybody in the room was rooting for you. Oh, <laughs> like usually somebody wins and everyone's like, Ugh, gosh. <laughs> you know. But it's the face I pull. That's it. <laughs> but everybody in the room that night was just so 
keen for you guys to win because it was just, um, you know, you guys are a team who just seem to dig each other. You don't do anything that's like icky and horrible and, hey, let's throw each other under the bus. There's none of that business. It's just good, clean, great conversation, couple of mates who enjoy each other's company. Um, and it was, yeah, everybody everybody in the room was was so happy that Oh, you that's nice to hear. And, and I say to um, – like I know people who think, oh, because we've just resigned for three years, resigned, resigned. It's that the hyphen makes all the difference. <laughs> <It does. laughs> Is there a hyphen? Yeah. Um, but people who think, oh, you're still doing those hours, like I'm doing a paper run or something. Mm. But there's no other job that is as fr- if you've got the chemistry right and you're doing it with your best friend. There's no other job that's as fun as this or as freeing as this. Short of writing a blog where you give your own thoughts on things. It's the m- most difficult but challenging and freeing job you can possibly have. Mm. And the fact it's hard is what I like about it and the fact that the unrelenting nature is also what I like about it because there's a blank piece of paper every day and we fill three hours of it. We we make a rundown and we talk it out for three hours mm. and then the next day we start again and it's such a such a skill set I think that you would not get in any other job. It also means when you're going across and doing things like the living room or any kind of television, mm. the set could fall down around you and you can keep going. Absolutely. This yeah. is what this is what I say when we have meetings of the living room. I say we all, you know, throw the ball in the air and it's always going to be okay. Mm. Even if we miss it, that's all right too. And that's why people who work in radio go on those shows like have been paying attention and all those things because you kind of match fit. Yeah. You're used to opening your mouth, as we said, starting a sentence and praying to the comedy and humanity gods that that (laughs) sentence ends without you being in jail. (laughs) And for you, I think sometimes with the full-time radio, that can be the only thing that you end up doing because there's very little time to do anything else. But you kind of have a good balance now because you've also got the living room. So it's a bit of telly as well. So it's not just the the radio. Is that nice to sort of have that balance of things? It is nice. And the living room isn't as unrelenting. It's sporadic. Mm. So, yes, it is a nice balance. Though I must say there are some days where we're sitting around and going, this is why I like radio. <laughs> the light's broken or someone's <laughs> late. Or we've got to do something again. Um, so you go, ugh. But yes, that's it. That's it's fun to have a finger in both camps. As Radio it makes you very impatient oh, when you turn off and do ra- and do television. You're like, why do we have to do that again? Mm. Like, <laughs> but even when I come home, I've I've really got to be careful that I don't walk in the door and treat people. And I don't treat anyone at work like this. But we're all on the same page mm. with the same pace. If you've got that piece of paper, someone says, "Come, can you research this for me? Can you find that for me?" You know, it's speedy. Yeah. And it's very hard to not walk in the door and say, did you talk to so-and-so? Have you blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And my husband will say, you're talking to me, you know. I'm not your producer. I'm not your producer. <laughs> yeah. Take a deep breath at the door. <laughs> and chill out. And chill out. That's the hardest thing ever. That's it. What do you think is the best and the worst thing about the industry? Worst thing, I think, is it's, it's very easy to cater to the lowest common denominator and I wonder sometimes that the, sh- you know, that shows that are doing very well, that stunty stuff, I personally don't like it. Mm-hmm. I personally don't even, I don't like any prank calls, practical jokes, um, razzing people, appealing to people's worst intent. I don't like that. I don't know if there's more of that than there used to be but that's not my style of radio. Mm. Best thing I think is that people predicted the end of radio a long time ago and that's that's not happening. And we always thought that when those personal music, um, you know, you, MP3 players 
iPods, all that stuff, now streaming music, what that has shown is that the content between the songs is what makes the difference. Your radio is no longer your jukebox. You know, yeah. It's great if you love the music they play, but it's what you say between the songs that makes your audience yours, I think. So I think it makes people realise how valuable our jobs are mm. or what we do. I don't even know if I've answered that question. Yeah, you have, absolutely, oh, 100%. Uh, we're down to the final five questions. Uh, favourite colour? <laughs> it's too hard. I refuse to answer. <laughs> Who has a favourite colour? Has anyone actually ever been asked that? Yeah, pe- I know. What people does it sometimes, mean? I don't know, but I've, I just could never. And it's then when a you kid's s- question, isn't it? It is such a kid's question. And then if somebody asks me, my, like I go, I don't know, like neutral tones or black. Black's not a colour. Go oh. away. Go away. Black's not a colour. It is a colour. Oh. <laughs> it's a shade. I know. It's not a Oh, go away. Uh, your biggest regret? I don't think it's nothing I can change, but I wish that I earlier on had taken a deep breath and think, what a great ride you're on, aren't you lucky? I was always, I always had that sense because I had a daggy teenage diary where I would write secretly that, oh, wouldn't it be great to, I didn't even know how I articulated it, but the dag that I was then would have loved, <clears throat> I'm not getting emotional that she's <laughs> <You're> going <laughs> through puberty. <laughs> I've grown a lot of chin hairs while I've been here. I would have been thrilled with the life I've had. My 14 year old self would have loved, and I wish a lot, and I, I've been grateful always, mm. always grateful, but I wish I'd sat back more and taken a deep breath and go, wow, um, have a moment of levity with it. Easier to do that when you know later on everything's fine. I know, that's right. If I'd fallen into a well at the age of 20 <laughs> and you'd get rescued by Lassie. Exactly. Wouldn't have been as- but at the time, if it's sort of like you're crapping yourself about yeah, whether or not this proving is going to happen, yeah. you know, that there's no time to sort of sit back and, and relax that's about it. That's quite right. I'll fall in the well. That's it. Um, your dream gig. I was reading that you that you want to have Joanna uh, Joanna Lumley style oh, choices. Wouldn't of, that be great? Where she travels the world and does documentaries about her grandfather being a Gurkha or something. <laughs> My <laughs> grandfather wasn't a Gurkha, okay, right? That's so off. That's <laughs> that's off the list. Hers was. I yep. could do her one <laughs> to steal her story. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Some sort of sword or something. Yep. Um, I think that'd be great. I mean, that that would be a dream. To a friend of mine wanted to do a show called The Great Cakes of Europe. I thought who could complain about that? Good. Yes. Looking at the historical relevance of cakes mm. or tribal jewellery, I thought would be another one. <laughs> Here I am in Kenya wearing jewels. You're just going off <laughs> piece. Right. <laughs> if anyone else is writing these down, I'll be furious. They're my <laughs> ideas, mine. I'm just um, wondering whether there was gin in that cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> there will be in a minute. But also, um, I look at uh, Julia Morris's career. I'd love to have a crack at a bit of serious acting. Have you done? I mean, I know you've I've done, done dumb acting on Swift and Shift Couriers, which right. a lot of people are talking about it, Rachel. <laughs> I don't want to go into too much detail. But really, I just played a crankier version of myself. Okay, right. <laughs> so yeah. that wasn't real. That wasn't a real stretch. But, but I'd were... like to do something acty. Were you in? Was there something in Bold and the Beautiful? Was it yes, but I played. Uh, I played a journalist who said, "Hey, Steffi, where do you get your jewelry ideas?" <laughs> But I was playing a journalist next to Jonesy and journalist number three was Ida Buttrose. <laughs> <laughs> so it wasn't a big stretch there. 
I'm really struggling because I've been so sick and every time I laugh I'm about to have a mad coughing fit. So um, that wasn't, you know, that wasn't Academy so Award winning. So far you've only played versions of yourself. That's right. Basically. I'd like to play a version of myself that wasn't myself. That wasn't you. So you'd like to do a bit of serious acting. Uh, Julie Morris has done very well in recent years. With I know, hasn't she? And serious. she's gone from this to this to this to this. Yeah. And, and I think these days it's okay to say, hey, you know me as this, but have a look at me doing this. Mm. Oh, well, watch this space. Mm. Uh, is there a big idea you've had over the years that you've wanted to get up that hasn't been done yet? Or <sighs> Look, probably not, apart from my Joanna Lumley that I'd forgotten about until you reminded me. Yep. Here um, I am to remind you of your past. I, I think when I finish daily radio, that's when I'll take a deep breath until then, I haven't got a moment for a thought. Mm. And also, on when you're doing radio, every idea you want to do sort of happens, doesn't it? Well, that's true. You sort of make it happen straight away. Well, that's the yes, but they're awful things. You're not yeah. awful things, but they're you know tomorrow I'll blow up a balloon. You know, they're <laughs> yeah. hardly trying to go through the Nile Delta on, <laughs> with a backpack, <laughs> dressed as Joanna Lumley. So I, there are those sorts of things that are hanging around my periphery, but I don't have any particular plan. Uh, if you weren't doing this as in working in media, what would you be doing? What version of media do you mean? I, I used to fantasise about doing PR for a theatre company. That's when I was in my you know, teens. I thought how dramatic that would be, that I'd wear dark colours and just look enigmatic. Wow. Look like a sort of German expressionist kind of a person. You've dodged a real bullet. I know some people in PR in theatre and they're miserable. I've got the flat shoes. Yeah, oh, good, oh, good. You're halfway there. You're halfway there. Was there ever, I mean, you know, the vet thing dribbled off? That dribbled off. I did, when I was in, I just left Wonderworld and I was in a play that a friend of mine was putting on at Sydney Uni where, and I've already mentioned this woman once, I got to wear a dress worn by Gwen Plum Ooh. and we didn't have to take it in at the seams, which is a little disappointing. <laughs> what a pity. <laughs> yeah, I said, well, we'll probably have to. Oh, no. Oh, no. It fits perfectly. Oh, no. Snug. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have to let it out. <laughs> but I had to on stage get my character had to get drunk in the space of about a minute and sadly it wasn't a comedy. It was, I think it was The Visit. Who would really watch a whole lot of 20-year-olds in an episode a production the of The Visit by Ibsen? You know, some turgid something or other. Oh, oh I know. Please, exactly. <laughs> Even I didn't want to see it oh, and I was in Lord. it. <laughs> so what, if you weren't doing this, you'd be acting in? In amateur theatrics. <laughs> He's behind you. <laughs> Actually, but- I don't know. I don't know what I would be doing. I'd, um, mm, 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 mm. Thank goodness this came off. Thank God. <laughs> oh, Thank God it worked. Wouldn't things be different? Yes. Uh, finally, your advice for people wanting to get into the business. No, it's hard, isn't it? Because people always say, knock on doors, make a pest of yourself. But as we've said earlier. Well, don't be a pest. Don't it's annoying. Be a pest. It's annoying. Those people are annoying. Yeah. I want to stab them with a ruler. Yeah. And the person that you, uh, that's happy to, to feel that kind of um, pestering, they're the dickhead you don't want to get on the side of. Very good point. Yeah. They're the ones that everybody else that's actually in the business doesn't thinks like. is an idiot. Yeah. You're quite right. Mm. Um, and it's all about timing. You can't predict that stuff. You you turn up to meet somebody and that door opens because someone else has gone through another door. This is stuff you can't orchestrate for yourself. Mm. But I would say that thing I said earlier is don't say no to something because you think it's not part of your grand plan because not having a grand plan is the best plan to have. 
I'm going to get that on a tattoo. No, I think that's excellent. <laughs> I think you should copyright it immediately copyright me. before somebody jo- steals and it. And me and Joanna Yes, exactly. Uh, thank you so much for putting up with my uh, half tranny voice. Oh, I've enjoyed it. <laughs> I was hoping for full tranny. I know, and uh, me nearly going into a coughing fit every time you make me laugh. Um, thank you so much for joining me. Amanda. I enjoyed really it. Thank you, it. Rachel. Thanks for listening to You've Got to Start Somewhere. Thanks. To subscribe to the podcast, check out other episodes, and keep up to date, head to you've got to start somewhere.com. Thank you so much for listening to my chat with Amanda Keller and for putting up with my barely hanging in their voice. I was struggling so much through that interview because I was right in the depths of that horrific flu that was going around. And Amanda is so friggin' funny that every time she made me laugh, I was just on the cusp of a coughing fit. And all I wanted to do was just let loose and be able to cackle. But I had to sort of hold myself down for fear of just it being an hour of me just hocking up my lungs. So it was great to sit down with her. She is such a wonderful woman, so hilarious. And it was great to get a chance to hear exactly how she's made her way to where she is now. As always, I want to say a big thank you if you are one of the delightful people who has left a review in iTunes. I am so grateful for your very kind words in that space. A big shout out to Kiro MX and JK on the radio for your reviews. Of course, I am more than happy for you to leave guest suggestions in those reviews. There have indeed been a few people who have suggested more women on the show, which is certainly something that I am working on. And it is at this point that I must inform you that next week will be the final week in the first series of You've Got to Start Somewhere. I am finishing it off with a bang with my number one most requested guest. I will be very honest, I didn't think I'd be able to get him. I I had my doubts, but when I heard back from the ABC that Mr. Sean McAuliffe had agreed to come on my show, I nearly fell off my chair. I have had so many emails about trying to get him on and I sat down with him the other day and he is a flippin' delight. I had had the pleasure of interviewing him uh, on my radio show with Merrick Watson, Jules Schiller, about five years ago was the last time that I saw him and he is just such a gem of a human, so unassuming, so humble, yet so hilarious and he tells a great story about being a four-year-old in a production of Sleeping Beauty. He was playing Prince Charming. He had to ride to the castle to kiss Sleeping Beauty and this was the time that he worked out exactly how to work a room. I had to get on the rocking horse and and ride towards the cardboard <laughs> castle. This is my uh, my director was telling me this. Okay, now okay, now get off the horse, get off the horse, and go over to to Linda and, and kiss her on the cheek. Um, and I remember getting off the horse, and the horse continued to rock, and uh, the other the other kids in the kindergarten laughed, and and I was conscious of that laugh. And she and the teacher said, "Make sure you stop the horse, otherwise pe- the parents will laugh." You know. And I'm thinking, why would you, why would you stop the horse? So on the on the afternoon, I really rode that horse and just made it rock as violently as I could. Got a huge laugh, and it felt perfectly natural. And I didn't acknowledge the laugh, and it felt right. I thought, well, if I I know instinctively, and I was conscious of this as a four year old, that if I don't acknowledge the laugh, it will go longer. 
So I, wow. knew, I, knew that that, I knew that that was the way to do it. I hope you'll join me for that chat. And thank you so much again for sticking with the show over the last 26 episodes. It has been an incredible ride. The guests that I have sat down with have been unbelievable. I've had such a good time chatting with everybody along the way. And I really can't wait to get more interviews coming your way. So please, if you haven't already, subscribe to the show in iTunes or wherever else you listen, because then you will be alerted as soon as as the show is back for the next season. If you've been enjoying the episodes, please leave a review because it helps other people find the show. A big shout out too to Darcy Milne from Pro Podcast Production for your help this week with this audio. If you need any production stuff done for your podcast, then head to him. He is a genius. Right, I will see you next week for the very final episode of the first season of You've Got to Start Somewhere. (laughs) 